Pray with me. Father, in the name, mighty, glorious, beautiful, sweet name of Jesus, we give you praise. We are thankful that we are a people called out from this world, called into the body of Christ, the church, the bride, the people of God, the elect, the chosen, the saints. Father, this is a privilege. And we sing to you today in praise. Through Jesus Christ, by your Spirit, giving thanks for your goodness, your grace, your sustaining love. We ask you now that as we worship in the Word, that you would prepare our hearts as tilled soil, fallow ground, broken up, that the seed, the good seed of the Word would fall upon us today and that it would produce fruit. And that we would, as James says, in humility receive the Word implanted. We know that that is a gift from You. Humble us, Father. Prepare us. Father, there's some folks here today, their burden is heavy. They feel like they cannot take another step. That it's now an unsustainable journey. And I pray today that by Your Word... By your spirit and right here in your church, Lord, you would encourage them, strengthen them. Father, there are some teetering on the edge of just walking away from something valuable. A marriage, a commitment, a church. They're just struggling. Temptation is strong and the pull is incredible and... I pray for them now, Father. Turn their hearts back toward you and toward what is right and good. Some come today sick and they need encouragement. Their body is breaking down under age or illness or stress. Their mind is giving way under the weight of their responsibilities. And they came today looking for you, Lord looking for Jesus, looking for help. Meet them there, Father. Show them. Love them in such a tangible way today that they walk away feeling embraced by You and by Your church. Build them up. Some come today in pretense, still living out a fake religion, Still making church services and even giving money and even in leadership, Lord, just going through the motions, but they lack you. I pray for them, Father, break their hearts today. Prepare them to turn to you and just give themselves to Jesus. Father, whatever the reason for gathering today, turn our hearts now in love to Jesus. By your Spirit, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So good to be with you. I really enjoyed Sunday school this morning and what we were studying as we were looking into the beginning of the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And what a joy it was to be reminded of His glory 
And I was also deeply convicted in Revelation 1 at these words. Listen to these words real quick in Revelation 1. They stirred my heart today and I shared with our Sunday school class. It says um, of Jesus, verse 4, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace and peace to him who is... And who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he's made us to be a kingdom priests to his God and father to him be glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he's coming with the clouds. And every eye will see him, and even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. And I, I shared with us, I said, you know, there's this part of this that we need to be thinking. I think we'll be mourning a little bit on that day, too. Now, I want you to think this through. Um, when Jesus appeared to John, his glory was such that John fell as a dead, dead man at his feet. So that means that Jesus is pretty glorious, right? Wouldn't you imagine he's pretty glorious if he's going to pretty much kill you with just a glimpse? And so, so John falls dead at his feet right there, and um, and there's this picture of him coming uh, on that day, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. And I share with our Sunday school class, I think there's two kinds of mourning. There's one kind of mourning that is the mourning of the unbeliever who realizes what they've passed over and whom they've passed up is now... Their judge stands before him, them in all of his power and might and glory. But I really think that, uh, that the church is going to mourn on that day just a bit. This is why. I believe that when we see his glory, we're going to regret all the tepid worship we were involved in. Now, I want you to think about this for a second. The sun will burn out your retinas if you stare at it at midday from 93 million miles away. What do you think it's going to be like to look at Jesus? And so I think that there's going to be some mourning on that day by the church going, this is who we were singing about in those, those mornings that we were just kind of half here? <laughs> this is who we were praying to in those mornings we were kind of half praying? This is who we're talking about on those mornings that the preacher was preaching? Is it, this is who... What? I think we're going to be very mournful on that day at the tepidness of our lives in general. So I was moved by that this morning. I hope as we share in His Word today that we won't be tepid in our faith about Him. Come with me to Romans chapter 8. We're moving into the conclusion of Romans 8. Um, and, and that'll take us a few weeks to come to that conclusion uh, I want to remind you of a couple of things. Uh, let's see, Lynn, if my advancer's working. I think it is. Okay. The goal that Paul is giving us is encouragement and endurance in the midst of suffering. That's the goal of what's happening in Romans 8. That's what Paul wants to bring about. Encouragement and endurance in the midst of suffering. Encouragement in the state of your salvation. Endurance because of your salvation, because it's going to be costly. He's going to talk about that in the passages that we study in the following weeks, particularly in verse 36 of Romans 8. But today what I want to talk to you about is sort of Paul's approach to his conclusion to Romans 8. So if you'll grab your outline, here's how the conclusion works. Paul begins his conclusion to Romans 8 with a series of questions and answers. 
That's what he's doing in Romans 8, 1, uh, uh, excuse me, 8, 31 through 35. He's doing some Q&A. He's asking some questions and he's giving some answers. Now, it's important that you separate in your mind so that you can walk through them the questions and their answers. Um, sometimes when we read through a text, we, we kind of say blah, 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 blah. And, and then we just walk away from it and we forget that the text has a structure and there's a reason it's written the way that it's written. There's a reason God's preserved for all these years this to hand to you, to put in your hand today, so that you could work through the very things that gave Paul such great confidence. Listen carefully. The kind of confidence that Paul gladly went to death for Jesus having. All right, that confidence that he had on his way to death for Jesus, glad to suffer for him, you can have exactly the same confidence. And the way that you can is through the knowledge of his word, working by the power of his spirit in the community of his church. And so Paul wants you to think this through. So it starts with a Q&A. For example, Romans 8.31 says, What then shall we say to these things? It's a question. He gives an answer. If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Question. Verse 33, question, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Answer. And so he's working, question, answer, question, answer. Let's read them slowly. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us? From the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, for thy sake, we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul's doing some Q&A to conclude his study 
of assurance. When Paul asks the question, who could be against us? He's not asking it as if there's no one who could be against us. He's asking us because there are things against us. Well, what are they? Well, there's um, opposition. It says, who is against us? Well, there's opposition. Satan is against you. Your flesh is against you. The world under the influence and domination of Satan are against you. There is opposition to you. It's not a lack of opposition that Paul is talking about. He's acknowledging that there is opposition. What else could be against you? Well, accusation. How ruined would you be if your closet was opened and everything you've ever done was broadcast on this screen this morning? What kind of accusations would follow that revelation? What kind of things would folks be talking about tomorrow morning on Facebook if your life story was played fast forward all the way through, every thought, every intention, every motive, every hidden thing about you was played. You think there'd be some accusations? Boy, I'll tell you what, if mine was played, I'd be headed to another country. Accusations are real. Why? Because we're real sinners. Every one of us. And we're not just real sinners, we're real bad sinners. What else would happen? Well, if those accusations stick, condemnation would follow. Condemnation from people. Perhaps these things were brought up to God and you just were guilty and you were just condemned. The entire chapter of Romans 8 is about condemnation. It's mentioned three very specific times. It starts out in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, God condemned sin in the flesh. So there's a lack of condemnation on you and there's the presence of condemnation on Jesus, so that when the question is asked, who condemns, you can know the answer to that. Because if you're without Jesus, that accusation and that condemnation because of opposition against you from your flesh that accuses you, from the devil who accuses you, from the world who's glad to publish whatever you've done in whatever magazine that they want to publish it in so that they can spread all the rumors and bring condemnation to you. But all that leads to this thing, separation. Paul's raising that issue. He's saying, do you have opposition? You better believe it. Are there accusations against you? Yes, sir, Rebob. Is there the potential of condemnation for you if those accusations stick? Oh, yeah, there is, both from the world and from God. 
And the result is, is that you will be alienated from people and from him. So Paul's not saying, oh, let me ask you some questions that are irrelevant to your situation. The questions he's asked are tired, tied to these four themes. The four themes are, is there anybody against you? Yes. Your own flesh is against you. The world is against you. The devil is against you. Is there any real accusation? Boy, if you trot out everything you've ever done, there would be. Is there the possibility of condemnation for you because of those things? Yeah. Those accusations stick? Yeah. What would that lead to? Well, the alienation of people that you know and the separation from God himself. So he's asking questions based on real issues. The truth about all of us is how heinous and sinful we really are. That apart from Christ, these are the scary questions in life. And these are the things leading to a scary eternity. So when Paul talks about questions and answers, he's not talking about them in isolation from the fact that these questions and answers actually matter to every one of us. And if we are in any way acquainted with how sinful we are, these are scary questions. So here's what Paul does. The structure of his questions and answers directs us toward a particular way of understanding the origin and foundation of his confident assurance. Paul has labeled himself the chief of sinners. He found himself working directly against God and his church, having participated in the brutal death of believers. He called himself a blasphemer and a violent aggressor. He was guilty of crimes against humanity. Paul was familiar with the accusations that could be placed by the opposition leading to his condemnation that would lead to his separation. He knew those things. He was so aware of them that Romans 7 is written about how that struggle stays alive even in the hearts of people who've been redeemed. And so Paul's talking about real issues for you and for me. And so when we analyze his argument, it's important for us to break it apart in the way Paul intended it to be broken apart so that we would bring to our hearts the same confident assurance that he's writing to us with so that when we stand before God on that day, though we may mourn for not having taken Jesus quite as gloriously as he is, we will know that yet we are the redeemed of His own blood. So Paul structures this in a way that makes us analyze the questions and analyze the answers. And the the unfortunate thing, if you notice today, I had the reading in the New American Standard, because the New American Standard is called a wooden translation. It's intended to be as close to the original as possible and still make sense in English, but trying to preserve even some of the difficulty of the original text. And one of the things I like about it is when you read Romans 8, you see very clearly the emphases that Paul makes with two kinds of words. So let's break that down. 
number three. Woven into Paul's confidence is a primary and secondary source of his assurance. In other words, there's something that is on the surface very obvious that is the secondary, but the structure of how he wrote it makes something else the primary. And if you don't pay attention to the structure, you'll get so focused on the secondary that you don't see the primary. Now, I'm going to make that make sense in a second with the next two points. Okay, so let's take a look. Number four, the secondary source of Paul's confident assurance is found in a list of what's. Okay, in other words, some actions, some facts. As he does the question and answer, he starts laying out some facts. What are the facts? Well, let's look at the facts. We find one in verse 31. God is for us. That's a fact. Paul wants you to know that. He's for you. Somebody is for you. There is a for you going on in the midst of the against you. If you've got the world, the flesh, and the devil against you, there's someone for you. There's someone dealing with the fact that you have opposition, that you have accusation, that you have condemnation, that there is this potential of separation. There is, in the midst of that, a fact. Somebody's for you. That's a fact. Well, then he gives another fact in verse 32. Somebody did not spare their own son, but delivered him up for us all. So there's a fact. The cross is a fact. It is a historical fact. Jesus delivered up once for all. Dies on the cross. Raised from the dead. That's a historical fact. It's a fact for us to place our faith in. And so, here's another what. Paul's laying these what's out. They sound primary, but they're really secondary. Go to verse 33, second half. You're justified. You're justified. It's the opposite of condemnation. The last part of the verse is you're justified. That's great. That's very good news. So here I am. Somebody's for me. The cross is a fact. Jesus was delivered up for me. Justification is a fact. I can say... Having been justified by faith, Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained our introduction into this grace in which we now stand. That's glorious. That's a fact. Justified by faith. Another what? Look in verse 34. You've got someone who died. Someone who was raised. Someone who is at the right hand. Someone who intercedes for us. You got that going for you. Here's another list of what's. A death. A burial. A resurrection. An ascension. Right hand of God. Interceding. You got that. Wow! That's a whole nother list of what's that you can go, yeah, that's really good. Then you've got in verse... 37, that you're loved. Last phrase in verse 37. You're loved. So, somebody's for you. Somebody 
delivered up their own son. Somebody justifies. Somebody died and was buried and was raised and ascended and is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. And and somebody loves you. So you've got all these wonderful facts. Paul lays them out. But they're all secondary. This is so important to Paul's logic in Romans 8. And it's so important to the structure. Now here's what I want you to do real quick. It's gonna, I'm going to give you a minute to do it. I want you to look at Romans 8 real quick. And um, Robin, can you throw on the screen, uh, Lynn, can you throw on the screen verses 31 through 35? Is that possible? Can you just throw it up there? Lynn's, Lynn's a... Genius with technology, so really thankful for that. Uh, get your Bible or, or look on screen. Um, and I just want you to look for a word real quick. I want you to really get busy about it. I want you to look for the word who. Okay? So start in verse 31 and get busy looking for the who's. Horton, here's a who, who that, however you want to who that. Go for it. Just look for the who's. Starting 31, go all the way to 35. Lynn's going to scroll through them. Count the who's. You can throw in 37 too. You finding some who's? Are there a lot of who's in there? Have you noticed that who is used more here than in a lot of other places in the Bible? Rarely will you ever find a place in the Bible where the word who is used so many times. Especially if you're reading the New American Standard, it stays very literal to the translation. Now, there's a reason for that. There's a very important reason. There's also a reason for the structure and how the Greek is written. Because the who stands at the beginning of all the arguments. Paul is doing something here. He's taking us and he's laying out these secondary things of somebody is for us. Somebody delivered up somebody for us. Somebody justifies. Somebody died. Somebody was raised. Somebody's at the right hand. Somebody is interceding and somebody loves us. But what he does with all of that is he leads every one of those with this glaring thing of the word who. He starts with a question, who's against us? And then he starts using the word who over and over. So go to number five for me, Lynn, real quick. Just click to the next slide for me. The primary source of Paul's confident assurance is found in a list of who's, not what's. This is so important. Paul's structure is to lift you above the mechanics of the theology of the cross. Somebody was delivered up. Somebody delivered their son. Somebody is interceding for you. Somebody's at the right hand of God. Somebody loves you. So that what he elevates in this is that the person at the center of all of this done for you is God. 
This is no small thing. When somebody does something for you, you're probably thankful most of the time. If somebody called me and said, hey Bart, um, somebody's cutting your grass for you right now. They're using your riding lawnmower and your weed eater. Uh, generally, I would probably say, man, that's great. Because I've got brothers and sisters in church who've done that for me a, a, a number of times. It's wonderful. Uh, Stephen uh, Cox has, has done that for me. And Ed Sylvester and the, the young Sunday school class and Nathan and all those guys when I was sick and recovering from cancer. Derek and uh, so, so, you know, you hear that and you say, oh, that's great. You know, somebody's cutting your grass for you right now. And, and immediately you say, well, who, who's doing it? Say, oh, uh, Ed's out there or Nathan's out there or Stephen and Scarlett are out there. And you say, man, that is awesome. But if somebody said, hey, Bart, some, uh, right now, I, say somebody calls me right now and says, hey, somebody's cutting your grass. Uh, they're on your riding lawnmower and they got your wheel. So who is it? They say, well, um, um, James Colvin and Remy. <laughs> what? They've got my lawnmower? I can see James out there through the neighborhood, you know, Remy. Just, okay, who does something for you is very different if somebody says, hey, Bart, um, I know you were sick this week, and we've got somebody covering this funeral that you were going to do. And and uh, they say, well, who's who's covering it for you? Um, and and so, well, I um, I'm kind of sorry to let you know, um, but um, the person who stepped in to do your funeral for you, uh, and and you know, you could run through all these lists of people, um, but maybe Richard Dawkins. You have to have a little science to even know that. Very famous atheist. Um, if, you, if somebody called me and says, it's covered, but Richard Dawkins is covering it, I would go, I don't think I want it covered. Just let them go on about their business. Um, sing a few songs, go to the house. All right? I don't think I want Richard Dawkins, famous atheist, to, to, to do that. No, I don't think so. But then if somebody said, well, Billy Graham's doing it. I say, it's good, I'm good. You just let them go with that. Who's covering something for you? Who's doing something for you? Has a big deal about how you view what is done for you. And what the Apostle Paul has done here is he's saying, we're not just talking about the judge down the street has judged you to be not guilty. We're not just talking about some guy who took your place in something. We're talking about the God who made the universe. Romans starts with the glory of His creation and how His created order turned against Him. And how Everything in the whole creation throbs with the reality of what kind of God we serve and how glorious He is and how He ought to be worshipped and served. And so when He drops in Romans 8, God is the one who justifies. He intends you not to get caught up in the justification as much as to stand back and say, Who? Who? God has declared me just? Jesus Christ, the King of the universe, is the one who has died. Yes, who was raised. Yes, who is at the right hand. Yes, who is interceding. Who? Jesus. What is Paul doing? 
His argument is elevating you above the facts of the acts into the author of the acts. So that your assurance isn't built just on some rote theology that you memorized when you were doing catechism as a child, but something that has now awakened you to a reality so big that the God of this universe had a personal interest in you in such a way as to deliver you from your opposition, deliver you from the accusations, deliver you from the condemnation, deliver you from the separation, and bring you into His own family and make you His by the death of His own Son. The church is supposed to step back from that and go, Wow! Who? God? Jesus? Yeah. That's the response Paul's looking for. That's why he can march straight to the executioner and say this. I am hard-pressed from both sides, having the desire to depart and be with Jesus, for that is so much better. But also having the desire to remain and do ministry with you. This is the kind of thing that made Paul look at the executioner's acts and say, To live is Christ, but to die is gain. What Paul's after here is worship. That's what he's after. Real assurance doesn't make us pull our smug little stools up into our nice little theology bins and sit down and say, I'm good to go. It's not what Paul's doing here. He's not trying to build a group of people who sit around smugly assured. These truths are so glorious that when Paul gets to the conclusion of the truths, he vomits out this statement uncontrollably in 1133. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Or who has first given to Him that it might be paid back to Him? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things to Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The church's response to good theology is not smug assurance. It's worship. That's what Paul is after. That's what he's pressing us toward here. That's why he writes in the way that he writes. So that you don't just get your theology out and go, Not condemned. Jesus died. Was raised. Right hand. And He's interceding, and He loves me. I'm good. But that you would step back from that, knowing the sinner that you are, and go, to God be the glory, great things He has done! So loved He the world that He gave us His Son! That's how we ought to be singing on Sundays. 
to hear. This glory is the boiling down of one final thing. It's not in your outline. I'm going to close with this. Um, it's a number six. You get to write this whole thing in. And this brings us to our conclusion. And they'll send us home. If I can do this without crying. The combination of the primary who and the secondary what sources leads us to the solution of our greatest problem. What's our greatest problem? What's our greatest problem? What, what we want to say is sin. We want to say that. And in a sense, there's a truth to that, but not really, that's not the final truth. You see, the problem is not just our sin. The problem is the expense. Now, let me share with you. Some of you know this precious couple from Ecuador. On the right, Jaime was saved the year I was born. He's been a faithful believer for as long as I've been alive. 1962, a traveling evangelist came by, shared the gospel with him. He got saved. He can't read. For many years, never had a Bible, but he trusted Jesus and laid all of his faith. His wife trusted also. Sweet wife, Carlotta, there on the left. We are at this moment in that picture, about three, four years ago, we were in uh, Quito. We're at the hospital. Believe it or not, she's dying. Now, when, she, when I talk about Sachila people being tough, she's old school tough. All right. She's actually dying in this picture. Um, we didn't know how dying she was. We knew she was sick. I visited her. She was laid up in her bed and, and we prayed for her and, and, and we knew something was bad wrong with her. And so Gary and I, our missionary in Ecuador, we had a conversation and said, we got to get her to Quito, capital city, and we got to get her to a doctor that really can look at her. So we took her by car. This is the doctor's visit. We took her by car all the way to Quito. Went to Gary's doctor, a U.S. trained Ecuadorian doctor who's just really good. He's good friends with a surgeon. And, and so they, they took her into the uh, office and did some exams and then said, ah, we've got some real concerns. And so did a scan on her and the scan came back and they just came to us and they looked really, really scared. They said, guys, uh, here's the deal. She has a severely strangulated colon. She's dying. She's got, it's, a, it's an hour's thing, not a day's thing. And, uh, and we've got we've to do something. And so Gary and I look at each other and say, wow. Now at that moment, what you might say is, well, her greatest issue was, uh, was this colon strangled. It really wasn't. It wasn't her greatest issue. The greatest issue is when the doctor told us what it would cost to fix it. This is a cash-only place. There's no insurance. It's cash-only. You want to do a surgery? Show me the money. It's cash-only. So the doctor looks at me and he says, I don't know. I'm thinking eight, ten thousand dollars at least. So at that moment, her greatest issue was not her colon. Cohen's already diagnosed. We know what's wrong. The issue is, who's got ten grand? I didn't have ten grand. Gary didn't have ten grand. So I did what I always do. <laughs> Call in friends. So I picked up my phone. I called a brother here in Kingsville. 
And I said, let me tell you the situation. And right now, I have to make the call right now. I have to make this decision. It's life or death for her. And this is the bill. It's going to be eight, ten thousand dollars Could be more. I heard my brother on the other end of the line. I heard him choke up a little. And he said, Bart, I will personally guarantee, and I give you my word, that this will be paid. I'll reach out to others also to get help. But I'm giving you my word that you can say yes because the cost is covered. Now, that's the generosity we live in at Kingsville. That's a beautiful thing, by the way. And so I was able to turn around to Gary and I said, tell him to go ahead. They prepped her, rolled her right into surgery, saved her life. Folks who were in Ecuador in post-day this year got to see Carlotta. She's getting older and more feeble, but they got to see her visit with her. Her life was spared right then. Her problem in that one moment was not the severity of the situation. It was the cost of correction. Now listen carefully. The revelation of Romans 8 is not just the severity of your situation. Your sin. Your opposition. Your accusations. Your condemnation. And your separation. Your issue that Paul raises is bigger than that. Your issue is that the cost is beyond reasonable payment. Now think that through. It's beyond reasonable payment. No amount of works, no amount of deeds, no amount of religion, no amount of repentance, no amount of things on your behalf could ever be done. There was no reasonable cost that could ever be paid. It was outside. Listen, when I told Jaime and Carlotta what the cost was, because we were honest with them, they thought, we know the answer to that. Ten grand? There ain't no ten grand here. We ain't got ten bucks. They knew. But a phone call and the word of a person brought about something beyond what for them was reasonable cost. Beyond their imagination. Now the brothers and sisters all gathered together in our church and gave to this. It didn't have to fall on one person. In fact, it's one of the two times in my life and my ministry that I've had to actually tell people, quit giving. We've got too much money. Isn't that great? <laughs> quit get, that's a, it's enough. We're good. The bill ended up being $14,000. Given by this congregation and a few others tied to us through the work in Ecuador. Amazing. It's a lot of money. A price that they didn't have. That's where your issue is this. The price on your soul is beyond reasonable expectation. Beyond reasonable payment. In fact, there, if the entire universe was mortgaged, listen to me, if the entire universe was mortgaged for the universe's total value, it could not have put a deposit on the price of your soul. 
Nothing. It's beyond and in steps God. Who is willing to resolve your issue? Because your issue is a payment issue. You know the sin is there. You know it's real. You know the accusation is true. You know the condemnation is possible. You know the separation is coming. You know the opposition against you that will bring that. You know that's true. And there is no payment that you can ever make. And God steps in. And it says, He who did not spare his own son. You see, the most unreasonable payment ever to be paid for anything was paid for you. There was no reasonable way you could ever expect God to do that. There was no reasonable way you could ever request of Him to do it. So when you get down to that little verse that's dropped down there at the bottom, when it says these words in Romans 8, it says them so gloriously. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through Him who loved us. Jaime and Carlotta felt loved that day as much as they can ever remember in their life. That a whole bunch of people who knew nothing about them would give in such a way as to save her Life. They were blown away by it. What is Paul after here? He wants you to see the payment and the payer so that you as the payee could sit down and rejoice and worship Him in spirit and in truth daily and weekly in such a way that you give Him glory because He did this for you. Unbelievable. So now listen and worship. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who also intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? But in all these things, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through Him who loved us. Please bow with me. Who? That's the word. Who are you going to worship? Who are you going to trust? Who are you going to follow? Who are you going to pursue? Who are you going to give glory to? Who are you going to testify about? Who? Well, I'll tell you who, the shoe, who should be. It should be Jesus. God the Father, through the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit, 
And all the who's in Whoville can all cry out to this one who loved us and gave himself for us. That's us. And so there's one who we should all be about. We should all be worshiping him. We should all be serving him because of what he has done for us. Some of you, you're here and you've never met this who. And I want to introduce you to him. He is God the Father who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to save you from your sins. Jesus was born of a virgin, lived perfectly and sinlessly, always knowing who was in charge and to whom He would give glory and who He would answer to. And that Jesus is He who died on the cross for your sins. Who was raised from the dead on the third day. Who ascended to the right hand of God the Father, sits there in all authority over heaven and earth right now. And He's the one who is interceding for all those who trust Him. Would you trust Him today? Would you turn from your sin and worship Him and adore Him? Call upon Him with me right now. God in heaven, I've heard this sweet, sweet message of good news. And you're the one who I want to worship. I want to serve. You're the one who I want to follow. I believe this good news about Jesus. And I turn from my sin. And I follow you. The great who. Save me. Forgive me. Assure me. Help me as I serve you. Some of you, you're believers here today. And your tepid worship is because you're real familiar with the theological what's. And you can quote the verses. But you've let the who get really diminished in your life. And you need to fix that today. Get all back on the who. (laughs) And understand that that love is beyond comprehension. Through Him who loved us. Believer, would you return to fellowship with the great who? Would you serve Him? Would you trust Him? However God's leading you, stir in your heart. Would you stand? Would you respond to Him? So this morning we have uh, Jacoby Parker has come forward this morning and his dad, Trey, has, has come with him. You guys, Jacoby and Trey, y'all come stand up here in the front. Uh, Jacoby has come confessing faith in Jesus Christ. And asking for baptism here at Kingsville. So we're celebrating with them. Richard, I want to ask if you would uh, walk them out so we could uh, greet them in the back and celebrate with them as a, as a church family. Getting to go by and see them. Uh, I want to share one uh, main announcement about this afternoon. So if you look in the bulletin, there's a great big image of a school and it's this local mission project today. I just want to clarify a few things about this. Number one, there is child care 
um, up to preschool, right, up to the, like, four-year-old preschool age, up to that for, uh, um, from 4.30 until 7, okay, 4.30 to 7, right, are the times for that, so not, not before 4.30 and after 7, but starting at 4.30 and ending at 7 uh, for that. Now, for those that have, you know, families where one parent can go and start and the other parent coming later, you guys work and figure that out, but the time is from 3 to 7 to work there tonight, uh, this afternoon to tonight, um, but if you have to come late, if you must leave early, whichever, those things are fine. If you look on there, there's some supply needs, and I don't want to make sure that we're not misunderstanding here. Uh, there, there are, there is some heavy labor stuff that we can do, but there's a lot of light labor things that we can do. Now, on the supply list, it looks like it's all heavy labor that we're doing, but things like wiping down tables and walls and mirrors and windows, those kind of things, the, the thing is, is we have those supplies, so we're not needing those, so I don't want you to think, well, there's no way I can run a weed eater this afternoon. I shouldn't come. There's a lot of light labor things for for children and those that feel like they can't run a weed or carry bags of sod and things like that around. There's a lot of light labor things. There's some assembling of bags and handbooks and moving some things around in the classroom. So there's uh, something available for everybody um, outside of those that we're given child care for. Uh, everybody else could come. Again, three to seven are the times there. But I will say this. Um, as far as the weed eaters and paintbrushes and trimmers and blowers and things like that, I don't think we need 40 of each of those, but it's better if we have more than not having enough. So just expect, especially if you have a pickup truck or an SUV, if you could throw it in the back of that vehicle and carry it up there, it'd be great if we didn't need it because we had enough. That's a lot better than needing five and we don't have five. So if you think you could bring those things, uh, please do that. Lots of things um, available to do there. And so if everybody here shows up, we can... We can figure that out and make that happen. So I hope that's um, possible. Uh, this morning we've got uh, one more thing after we do this, but I want to ask um, if we could have a special prayer uh, for Andrew right now. He is leaving this afternoon to head off to seminary, so I know we did celebration later, but just kind of want to have a special prayer commissioning um, as Andrew leaves off literally this afternoon. I mean, I think he's going to eat with his family, and then he's going to head on out. So... Uh, Bart, if you'll come stand next to him, um, the rest of the church, just ask you guys, just to, from where you're at, let's just have a specific prayer uh, for him. And then we've got one more thing, so don't, don't leave at the end of my amen that we're used to. So uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the kindness that you have shown us in Jesus Christ. Father, I thank you for the kindness that you have shown Kingsville Baptist Church by the work that you have done in Andrew and the work you have done to Andrew um, through your people, through your church, uh, through your son, Jesus Christ. All of this is possible. We know um, that Jesus is the who. Father, we know that Jesus uh, supplies the power, the motivation um, for this. So, Father, we ask that by, in, in through your spirit, Father, we ask that through the power of your word and the, and the gospel that is living inside of Andrew by your goodness and kindness, Father, we pray that you would empower him um, to continue to serve you, um, to continue to grow in his faith in Christ. And, Father, we pray that you would provide for him um, an extension of the body of Christ. We pray that the church of Jesus Christ would continue to come alongside him and love him and care for him. But, Father, also that the body of Christ 
Christ would continue um, to serve with him. And we pray that you would give him opportunity um, to not just grow in his education and in his knowledge, but also in his faith in you, the Son of, of God. So, Father, we pray uh, for your kindness continued in his life. Give him safety as he and his family are traveling up. Um, Father, we pray that, uh, that, again, that you would give him a place to know you, a place to grow in you. And, Father, we pray for the other students and the, the uh, professors at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, Father, and we pray that you would multiply the gospel in his heart, and, Father, that through him you would multiply the gospel in the hearts of others. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. And, uh, church family, I just, I'll make this as quick as I can. <laughs> um, we serve an awesome God. And a mighty God. And everything he does is perfect and can be trusted. And when we seek and trust him, he makes clear the path that we are to follow in life. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 tell us to trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on your own understanding. But in all your ways, know him and he will make your path straight. It's with this understanding and a great amount of prayer that I tender my resignation as Minister of Music and Senior Adults effective on August 19th, 2018. My family and I will be serving a church in El Dorado, Arkansas, uh, where we will be closer to family and begin a new journey in ministry. We ask for your prayers as we make this transition, and, and we commit to do the same for you. It has been an honor and a privilege to serve alongside you and the staff here at Kingsville. My family and I have grown greatly over the past six and a half years here. And Kingsville will always hold a special place in our hearts. Thank you for your friendships, your generosity, your love for the gospel, and reaching people from the neighborhoods to the nations. Brittany, come and stand with me. Transitions are very difficult. So let's pray for them. Let's pray for our flock. Let's pray for their children. Uh, We'll have a kind of a going away time to spend time with them on the 19th, on the evening. Um, Be praying for them as they prepare, as they pack all those things that come that are really difficult, and pray for their children in transition. That's always a hard thing. Pray with me for them now, and then I'm going to ask that you uh, come by and see them on your way out this morning. I'm asking them to stand down front for a minute and just hang out with you, and then we'll get some more time with them later. Let's pray together. Father... Transitions are hard. I hate them. I um, always have. But uh, I know that your hand is good, that you doeth all things well. And as Sean said, that uh, when we acknowledge you in all our ways, you will direct our paths. So I pray for them in their transition. Have mercy. Lord, help our congregation in the morning, in the sorrow but also help us in the joy that we've always been a sending station, never just collecting to ourselves, but always equipping and sending. And I pray that Sean and Brittany will be equipped to serve, to minister, and to pour their lives out and into the city of El Dorado, and that good things will come from that. I pray for their precious boys and their precious girl, that you have mercy on them and give grace to them during this time. I pray that in the midst of sorrow, you will grant great joy. Thank you for their ministry to and with us. May you bless their steps in Jesus' name. Amen.